God's word. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I read that far in God's word. In our culture today, we have a, a phrase that I find is, is new in these last uh, couple decades, I suppose. It's called an elevator speech. I don't know when it originated, but maybe I just heard it over the last couple of decades. But the, the phrase imagines a scenario in which you're a little worker in a big building in a big company, and one day you're getting onto the elevator to go up to your floor, and suddenly the big man himself the CEO of the whole company steps onto the elevator with you without any pre-warning. The door closes and it's just the two of you in that elevator. You suddenly have one minute to either ask or say something that you want to to the big boss. And the elevator speech is supposed to remind us to always be ready to ask what you want to ask or say what you want to say. The statement is what we call the elevator speech. And I think of that as we come to this passage because... This scribe who has spent his life studying the law of God now has the author standing in front of him. He has this this one opportunity to do what we call an elevator speech. If you could just put yourself there, imagine you're spending your life trying to understand the scriptures. Or imagine that you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're listening now and you're new to Christianity. Like this scribe here having a chance to ask Jesus himself, What's the Bible all about? What's Christianity all about, O Christ? The Bible has 66 books. Studying Jeremiah lately, it's, it's rough, it's tough. There's a lot in there. Hard for me to understand how the whole Bible fits together and what it's really saying. Could you summarize it for me, please, sir? That's a wonderful opportunity. And We who are studying this passage can be glad that this scribe took that opportunity and asked that question because now we get this incredible passage, the statement of Jesus. This scribe was in the presence of greatness himself. Jesus, as you know, is the greatest teacher who ever lived, absolutely hands down. He was able to take the commandments of God that God ever wrote down on stone tablets, for example, or on scrolls or on parchments, and all the commands that God ever spoke through all the prophets. And Jesus was able to say, very short notice, sure, I can answer that. Here's the essence of what God said in all those places and in all those ways. And he summarized it for him. And you know, there's a statement here, as we'll talk about in a moment, that it starts off with this famous Jewish statement. Hear, O Israel, 
And in Jewish religion, there's also another um, famous incident similar to this, a, a story that would have been told, um, perhaps you hadn't heard it if you weren't in those circles. An ancient teacher has a request from a student to a, a famous a Jewish teacher, and he says, um, teacher, teach me the core thing about the scriptures while I'm standing on one leg. Oh, you can't see me if I come out from behind. Standing on one leg. In other words, in the brief moments that I could remain standing on one leg, you have your opportunity to say to me what it's all about. And he was saying, stop using so many words. (laughs) Don't make us come to class after class after class, and we're supposed to figure out what it all means. Please boil it all down for me while I'm standing on one leg. If you're the expert, you should be able to tell me what it's all about in a short couple sentences. It's a famous incident that reminds us of what the scribe is saying to Jesus here. Think about it. There's five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And within those books, Bible scholars have identified 613 separate and distinct commandments of God. Okay, but of those 613, could you just tell me, what does God expect of me at its core? Simplify it for me. Sure. Yeah, the the crucial key that unlocks the door of the kingdom of God and the scriptures of God is love. First, God's own love for his people, though we're sinners, and then our all-out love for God and our love for our neighbors, created as God's image bearers. God alone is worthy of our full-hearted worship and devotion and service, even our personal affection and commitment The greatest command of all is to love God more than we love anyone else, more than we love anything else. And second to that is loving others. How much? As we love ourselves. You say, well, that sounds kind of selfish. I'm not sure I would like to admit in church that I love myself and then supposed to love others as I love myself. Well, let me just straighten you out on that really fast, a a quick set of questions like a test for you now to show how much you actually do love yourself. When you're hungry, do you feed yourself or continue to go hungry? Just answer among yourselves. Don't answer out loud. Okay. Then when you're thirsty, uh, do you get something to drink, something that's refreshing? Or do you just continue in in thirst? Okay, that's two. And then the third one, uh, when you're tired, uh, do you get some rest for yourself? Just answering those simple questions, and you know, we could extrapolate and spend a half hour unpacking how much you love yourself. And you get the point, so we love ourselves. The question is, do we love others like that? Loving God, loving others, that's what it's all about. The scriptures say that that's what it's all about. Jesus, the greatest teacher, told us that's the summary, and it brings us to the main point of the sermon tonight, which is, Jesus taught us the top priority, which is to love God, love others, and then... Jesus died and rose again to cleanse us for breaking it and to equip us to keep it more and more. So first we'll see his question, the one more question I call it because there had been previous questions from more hostile groups. This question regarding the most important command, verse 28.1. Then we'll move to point two, the most important answer about the most important command, verses 29 to 31, words of Jesus that we've read. And then lastly, Third point, verses 32 to 34, the surprising response, the inviting verdict, and the silencing of further questions. 
So we'll move to our first point. One more question. Verse 28, we have the the newest person coming to Jesus with a fresh question. Uh, He comes because he's a little bit emboldened to see that others had been asking Jesus questions, we see in verse 28. They had begun to dispute, as it were, or uh, there was a a debate between Jesus, a rabbi, and the other uh, teachers. They were disputing and seeing that Jesus answered them well, no matter how hostile the question, no matter how difficult the spin, they were not able to trick him. And uh, the scribe was impressed. He, he thought, this is a person who answers well. This is a person who I believe I can trust. And so he comes now with his own question. The previous two questions were antagonistic. This one seems to be friendly, as you'll see as it unpacks. So there's a really cool thing here as well in the structure as Mark is putting the gospel together. In the larger movement of activities, if you study chapters 11 and 12 in a big picture, there's a movement towards Passover, towards the celebration of Passover. And in Jewish Passover celebrations, there were always a series of questions. The questions were asked, perhaps by the children, and the questions were answered by the father, usually, in the enjoyment of the family time and celebrating the ceremony of the Passover itself. And what you see here is actually that same pattern in the Gospel of Mark presenting Jesus, the pattern of a series of questions being asked, a series of questions being answered as we're heading towards the Passover as the whole Christian church. It's Mark's way of showing us Jesus. Mark's showing us there's questions that lead up to the true Passover, And here's the true Passover lamb, Jesus, the one who can answer all the questions that the Passover celebration itself leaves unanswered for us. He's the true priest. He's the true prophet. He's even the sacrificial Passover lamb himself. He's the great teacher, so he has something to teach. It's this structure of leading towards the Passover I wanted you to see. But now we dig in. Jesus has something to teach this particular scribe, and we all get to overhear and and listen and learn also. He'll show us that uh, whenever we do what this scribe was doing, it leads to disaster. Namely, that this scribe was attempting to measure himself by the commands of God. If you would just tell me what's expected of me, then I'll be able to tell you how I've fulfilled those expectations. He doesn't realize that God would never be satisfied with us identifying the one top question and attempting to follow that one command in a general way, the best way we can. It's never going to be enough. God would not be satisfied with anything less than our full devotion of our whole lives during our entire duration of our lives to the living God and him alone. And so, if you just want to take those 613 commandments and summarize them effectively and then make a case for how well I've done in that, you're no different than other scribes and teachers who've approached Jesus and the Gospels. And so we move on from the scribe's question to the incredible answer now given by Jesus, our second point, starting with verse 29, the most important answer about the most important command. Verse 29, Jesus began his answer with famous words, Uh, words from the Bible, words from Deuteronomy chapter 6, words that are summarized with with one Hebrew word, Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that simply means hear, as it's translated well for you there in verse 29, hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel. The word Shema is a summary for all that comes next in verses 29 and, and 30. 
And the Shema was as important to worshipers in Old Testament Judaism as the Lord's Prayer is to worshipers now in New Testament Christianity. The original context of the Shema also has to be brought with it. Perhaps we'd do well to pause now and study the all of Deuteronomy chapter 6, but let me just summarize a few key points from it so that we remember the whole context. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy is incredibly instructive. That's where it comes from, this Shema, Hero Israel. If you're going to boil things down, if you're going to summarize what the commands of God are, this is an excellent place to start. To love God was to obey him, quote, all the days of your life. How comprehensive is that? Who has done that? Are you convicted yet? The the context is incredibly convicting. Deuteronomy 6, verse 2 is what I quoted from. In that context of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, to love God means you commit to teaching these commandments to your children, and in fact, to your grandchildren, it says, and lists out there, and not just to teach it to them, but to live as an example to them behind your teaching. Not just words, but to show by example. When? Oh, let me quickly just summarize for you when. Whenever you sit, whenever you walk, whenever you lie down, whenever you rise up, Throughout the day, each day. That's when. (laughs) Why? Because we remember that God, quote, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Deuteronomy 6, verse 12. In other words, we are indebted to God, who is the Savior of us, who brought us out of slavery, which is a picture of slavery to sin. That's what the Shema means. That's what Jesus is referencing. That is. In context, what we call synecdochic is that if you mention this, you really mean the whole thing. Um, Where's the car? It's in the garage. It it means that the entire car is in the garage, not just the steering wheel or two of the wheels. The entire car is in the garage. And so when we say Shema, we mean love God with everything you have. So in verse 30, as he then spells out the part of that quotation from Deuteronomy 6, he says, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, our our whole person is called on to cooperate with itself in loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the heart, as we talk about it in modern American language, the heart is the hub of the wheel of our existence. And from our hearts come those other aspects, the thoughts and words and deeds. For example, consider Proverbs 6, 12. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, that is, from your heart, flow the springs of life, Proverbs four twenty three. The soul is just another way of saying the heart. The seat of our spirit, our liveliness, our, our feelings, and our emotional activity. You could see somebody uh, watching a game or, or watching a recital of a grandchild and say, Ra, ra, right? Is there heart in it? That's the kind of difference between being where you're supposed to be, sitting where you're supposed to be, and clapping your hands the way you're supposed to, or if your heart is really in it. The mind is, of course, the center of our intellectual lives, but it houses our will, which is, I always say, the will is our decision-making center. Uh, Will I pay my taxes? Uh, Will I drive the speed limit? Will I love this person? The will, our decision-making center, but also our attitude, how we approach these decisions, how we approach the follow-through. Heart, soul, 
mind, strength. So in the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which Jesus is quoting here, the reading is heart, soul, and might, or power. But here in Mark 12, verse 30, we have Jesus saying, and Mark quoting him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I just submit to you that we are not expected to overanalyze the difference, the difference between what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 6 and what Jesus said, and apparently Mark then wrote down in Mark 12, verse 30. We're not supposed to see the differences and overanalyze all of that because we'll get distracted, as if Mark could improve on what Moses wrote, as if Mark wasn't carried along by the same Holy Spirit that carried along Moses, as if God wasn't the author of both what Moses wrote and what Mark wrote and what Jesus said. No, Mark is not trying to improve on the classic Shema of God. Mark knows that all these passages have the same core idea, that man should love God with all the faculties with which God has endowed man. And in each category... We're called to go as far as we possibly can. And here's what I promised my illustration of an organ. We have this phrase in our culture, pull out all the stops, and it comes from organ use, where as you're playing the organ, you can pull out stops, and I'll probably explain this poorly, and you can get corrections from others in this room later, but you pull out the stops to add depth, to add sound, to increase, enhance, and deepen, and enliven the sound. It's called pulling out the stops. The organ gets louder, and the more stops you get, the stronger it is. And at the grand finale of the song, you want all the stops out. We're asked by God to use every single one of our faculties all the way out, as far as we can. And in verse 30, there's four times Jesus uses the word all. Four times. In this generation, in our culture, we also have another phrase, all in. I think that's a wonderful way to say the meaning of here, verse 30. The great teacher said it this way, Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's pretty clear. That's what the Bible is all about. And the second is like it, verse 31. The second most important commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these two. Now, isn't that interesting? The scribe asked for one command. Jesus replied with two. You know why? Because he's the great teacher. And he doesn't have to submit to the way the question is framed. Because he's teaching something that's more profound than the question more profound than the ability of the person who's asking to ask it the right way. Jesus is saying something uh, to us here. He's revealing something significant, profound, and important. That the first command to love God and the second command to love others are connected and inseparable. So that we get... Place after place where the apostles in the New Testament are picking up on this idea and spending time to unravel and unpack the meaning thereof. For example, you can't say I love God and hate your brother. It'll never fly. Why? Because loving God and loving others are connected. You either love both or you love neither. That's what Jesus is saying by adding the second command. We, we love others as an expression of our love of God. We love God, and therefore we love everyone that has been made in his image. 
And even when God's image is being distorted through the lives and misactivity of others, we're called to love them because we can see what they were meant to be. You're moved with compassion for how they are suffering and how they're messing things up and their own sin and their lives and they're impacting others, they're impacting us, and yet we love them. We are called to confront, we're called to overlook, we're, we're called to endure, and all the various things the New Testament tells us about stem from here, from this. It's part of loving God. If we love God right, we'll love others right, and vice versa. Moving then to our third point, verses 32 to 34, how the interaction went from there between Jesus and our scribe. Verse 32, the scribe basically said, what a beautiful answer. He's not evaluating Jesus and saying, that's right, that's correct, as if he's smarter than Jesus. What he's reacting to is the beauty of it. He's saying the same thing that we could see back in in verse 28, where he, he was impressed with how Jesus answered well. Again, here he's impressed with how Jesus answered well. He's saying, you are so right. That, that's incredible. That's well said, beautiful. What a beautiful answer is a great way to say how the scribe is responding. That's a surprising response. For, for the scribes that we've experienced since chapter 11, they haven't had that sort of response. They're kind of miffed that they weren't able to trick Jesus and stump him. They're against him. The scribe is not against Jesus. He... He's not against him asking questions in some antagonistic way. This scribe is warm. This scribe is accepting of the great teaching of Jesus. This scribe recognizes the deep truth immediately the moment Jesus says it, namely, that within the commands of God, there's a priority. That means that there's some that are more important, some that are necessarily then less important. For example... The scribe then says, loving God and loving neighbor is, regarding importance, much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you see it? Much more than. Those three words are very important. It signals to us what the scribe understands from what Jesus has taught. Jesus is teaching that there's 613 commands, but there's one central one, and then an offshoot of that that touch all 613. Therefore, necessarily, all the other lesser, lower commands are, by gradation, less important. All the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices, there's still commands and they're required, but they're not as important as the central, top-tier things to love God and love others. How How do you immediately know this is true. Let me just roll it out for you. Let's say a person in the Old Testament brought an animal as their place to come to God and worship, to bring a, a burnt offering, uh, the way that the Old Testament commanded for that to happen, a sacrifice to God and worship. And the, Let's say that person brought the animal and basically just kind of oh, yawned their way through the day. They brought the animal, the animal was sent to the priest, the animal was accepted, then the animal was sacrificed, and the animal was burned, and worship happened. They're going through the motions of being in the temple. But in their hearts, they didn't have a love for God. There was a lack of the sort of passion and love for God that ought to be there. You see how loving God is more important than bringing the sacrifice. Make sure you get your burnt sacrifice here. No, it's loving God. 
That's what's missing. And you see how that could happen, that, that someone could be in the right place, doing the right things, but not have the right heart, mind, soul, and strength attached to those right places and right things. We know this inherently. The priority, the the gradation, the difference. Remember what had been happening just prior to our passage. Jesus had been speaking against what had been happening in the temple. Remember? Selling pigeons, making money in the place that's supposed to be the place for prayer to God the scribe could start to understand why Jesus, the great teacher, overturned the tables. That's what had been happening just prior to this. I know many weeks have passed and we've covered sermons in small sections. But remember, this is very recent that Jesus overturned the tables because of what was happening in the temple was a sham. The temple worship had been missing the main thing. Love for God. Prayer to God, genuineness, heart-level worship. It wasn't there. So Jesus responded by overturning the tables. The scribe is beginning to understand. Verse 34, Jesus saw the scribe had answered wisely, so Jesus ended the matter when Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from. You see those three words, not far from. Is this encouraging or discouraging? <laughs> it's encouraging because he's closer than all the other scribes and Pharisees we've been studying. He, he seems to have warmth to Jesus. He, he seems to understand more and he's more interested and respectful. He's honest. But is he in or out? <laughs> not far from means out. If If you try to jump from one side of the creek to the other side of the creek, (laughs) and you're not far from the other side of the creek, (laughs) you're in the water, right? If you're not on the creek bed, you're in the water. If you're not in the kingdom, you're out of the kingdom. If this scribe would now, by God's grace, take one more step, you're so close, sir. Take one more step, namely to believe in Jesus as your Savior, the scribe would then advance forward from a position of being not far from and progress over to a new position of being inside the kingdom of God by virtue of the mercy of Christ Jesus. Jesus is inviting the man to come in. You're at the threshold, sir. Please. Come in! It's in there in my third point, the inviting verdict. It's a verdict about him. It's an evaluation of where he stands. It's his current status. But it's saying, please don't stay there. Come in. Trust me. Believe in me. He's encouraging the scribe to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Verse 34, the very last statement in our passage, ends this way. After that, no one, dared ask him any more questions. What a wonderful way to end this passage. They gave up all hopes that they've been trying for a few chapters now to trap Jesus in his words. You're not going to trap this teacher in his words. 
They give up all attempts to discredit Jesus as a teacher of God's word. He's not going to be discredited. He's not going to be tricked into saying something that really shouldn't appear on the front page of tomorrow's paper. He's not going to be stumped by their questions saying, I don't know. You got me there. Let me think about that one. Every time they asked Jesus something, his answers were profound. His answers were delightful. His answers are things that we find being explained through the rest of the New Testament. It starts with the teaching he gave here. We ought to be profoundly grateful for the scoundrels who's asked the question and then this warm-hearted scribe who asked his question because they're in the presence of greatness and we'll take every drip we can get from the teaching of Jesus. Those who were opposed to Jesus had used their questions in order to attempt to expose Jesus. They ended up crushed by the sheer power of Jesus' profundity of teaching and the matching example of his person and life, his actions, his behavior are all consistent. As a result of the series of hostile questions and Jesus' masterful answers, one of the scribes was closer to the kingdom than he was before. You're not far, he says to the scribe. And while all this is happening, Jesus managed to silence his opponents by his indisputable teaching. Fun passage. That's what we've studied tonight. And I only have one application to us. Coming back around to the gospel truth. Remember, we need a new heart in order to love God the right way. It's my one application. Remember this, please. We study the commandments of God, and we study how we're supposed to. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love others. We can end up going down a path of law instead of a path of grace. So I implore you to remember this. We need a new heart to love God the right way. Jesus is the greatest teacher, right? I've said that a number of times tonight, the greatest teacher. He's so much more. He's the Savior, He didn't just come to teach so we'd understand the law better, that we could summarize it. He came to save. What other rabbi could ever do that? He came to help us realize how we cannot possibly keep these commandments. Can you love God with all your heart and soul? This day have you loved your neighbor as you're supposed to. Please don't rely on the law and your ability to keep it. We don't need a a teacher to come from heaven to tell us what we cannot perform and then watch us die as we fail. We need a savior who can come from heaven to earth to be the king, to announce the kingdom, to ask us to enter his kingdom in the only way we can enter it, and it's not through better performance. Go back to the first words of our teacher and savior, In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is it at hand? Because the king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Then what does he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1, 15. What we learn from our study passage tonight is that it's possible for someone to grow up in the church and never come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's possible for someone to go to theological school and graduate with flying colors and never come to 
saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible to have heard the grace of Christ preached to you for many years and still be trusting in your own goodness. It's possible, from what we see in this passage, for a scribe who spends his whole career studying the scriptures of God to be within an inch, as it were, of the kingdom of God, standing right in front of the king himself, the greatest teacher ever, and the savior himself, and still not be in the kingdom. That's possible. And I'm not saying this to frighten you. I'm saying this to orient us. If you're just outside of an airplane, you're one step away from going to a whole new place as the plane takes off, flies, and lands somewhere else. You're one step away, but you're outside the plane. If you do not take that one step, the door will close, the plane will fly away, and you're going to stay in the very same place you are. All you'll have is the memory and the story about telling people how close I was to an airplane. I was very close to an airplane that went somewhere. The scribe is close. He needed Jesus to give him a new heart. That's how it works. That's the gospel. We know this from the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's God's prophecy. And we see how this is worked out in the letter of John, 1 John chapter 4. Let me read verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or covering for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. That's a whole other sermon, but I had to read it here to orient us about the grace of God versus law. Jesus is saying, see, all other approaches are not satisfactory. Mark 11 showed us that Israel cannot come to God through their own practices. They're like a withered fig tree. We saw that in chapter 11. Chapter 12, we saw we cannot come to God through the temple, whether you're a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a Herodian, or any other teacher or scribe. You can't even see that you can't get to God through their legal regulations such as the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Similarly today, we, we can't get to God through our own obedience, through our own doing better. Get better, do more, get better, be serious about it. Double your efforts, triple your efforts, quadruple your efforts. You can't get there to love God enough. We don't obey God in this. We don't love God as we should, and we're supposed to. In the progression of the Gospel of Mark, the stage is being cleared for the final act. You can't do this, Mark is screaming. The only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ himself. He's not just the teacher. He is the Savior. He is the sacrifice. He's the Passover 
Lamb. He alone it is who loved God the Father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. Christ alone it is who loved his neighbor, which is us, as himself. Christ alone is he who loved enough to die for us and rise again. It's by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's by the resurrection power of Christ that we are enabled to love God supremely, to love God comprehensively, to love him throughout the whole duration of our lives, and to love other people genuinely. To love God rightly is to love others genuinely, and you just don't have it in you unless you have the Spirit of Christ in you. To love others at all is an expression of loving the living God. These two commandments remain tied together. The two great loves are linked in Christ. We need the grace of Christ who alone can remake us, giving us a new heart. It's what Paul expressed in my final verse now here reading, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old heart passed away. The new heart come. The old soul passed away. The new heart come. The old mind passed away. The new mind has come. You get the idea. The old mind, soul, and strength passed away. The new mind, new soul, new strength has come. And it's all given to us through Jesus Christ, the teacher and savior of his people. Let's pray.